For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So good evening, everyone. I'm David Ray. I think I know almost everybody here. I've been uh, practicing with Ancient Dragons since uh, January 2000. And um, tonight, my Dharma talk title is Living in Buddha's Body. I want to talk about our shared practice as an embodied practice, as a practice that happens in the body. Um, I also want to talk about how this practice school of ours seems very keen on um, reminding us that this body right here, uh, right here on on this cushion, um, is Buddha's body and that we are living in Buddha's body. Um, So my plan is to talk about no fewer than seven different embodied ritual practices in Soto Zen Buddhism, not not including Zazen. I may only get to the first two in 30 minutes or 25 minutes. We'll see how that goes. But the last five will go very fast. Dogen mentions them in the chant that we just chanted. So we'll see how how this works. Uh, My recent practice life has included a couple of, uh, I guess I could call them milestone events. And those have got me reflecting on this matter of the body and Buddha's body. So I was grateful to have the opportunity to gather some of those thoughts for this talk. Uh, one of those experiences was Jukai receiving the precepts and the, the Raku suit that I'm wearing. And uh, also, uh, so that was in June. And then in uh, July, the first seven-day session that I had attended, and that was at Hokyoji in Minnesota. And there I was a meal server for Oryoki all seven days. And that really felt like a rich and deep experience. Um, also, the, the Dharma talk material was the ox herding pictures, and I went into to that thinking, wait, the ox and the herder, that's dualism, wait, the ox herding pictures, that's, you know, gaining mind and progress, and I learned a lot about those pictures, uh, thanks to Sosan's Dharma talks, and I really found myself thinking about the body, and trauma, and healing, and delusion and awakening and uh, and the non-separateness of those things in the body. But I think that's material for another talk. I think it was, I will stick with Jukai and uh, Oryoki and then the, the five um, devotions that Dogen talks about. So the Rakusu, what is this thing that I'm wearing? Maybe everybody in the room knows this story. Uh, but a personal account, I had never heard of this thing called a Rakusu until I looked on the Ancient Dragon website, and I found the page, it's still there, titled Sewing Buddha's Robe. This phrase really struck me, and it took me a while, in fact, as I was looking to understand it. Oh, these are robes not for statues of Buddha, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the infant Jesus of Prague and stuff like that, <laughs> and gets, you know, a different wardrobe through the year, but rather for living bodies of practitioners who have committed to the Bodhisattva path by receiving the precepts. Um, for my years of intermittent Catholic practice, which I already outed, um, from conversion at age 13 to sometime in my 50s, I was familiar with a lot of mystical and beautiful ideas about incarnation and you know, mystical bodies, like congregations as mystical bodies and things like that. But making a garment, putting it on, and 
naming it and experiencing it as Buddha's robe um, was a new notion to me, and it was also very um, appealing uh, and mysterious. So a little bit about the history of, of this, this garment tradition. Um, the idea of a full monastic robe in a pattern that looks like a rice field is attributed to Buddha himself. Um, one story is that a king suggested to him that it would be nice to have an identifying garment for followers of Buddha's way. Part of the idea clearly is that it's a unique enough pattern that, that, that it's recognizable. Uh, the, the Rakusu is an abbreviated form of a Keshaya or Okesa. That O is a, is a reverential uh, prefix, Okesa, uh, which is the full monastic robe. Rakusu's probably developed in China, and maybe that was originally in response to a time when Buddhist practice was forbidden and persecuted. But in any event, at some point it became a symbol um, and an embodiment of receiving the Bodhisattva precepts and uh, a garment worn by lay as well as uh, ordained practitioners, and we say we say lay ordained, which, is, which in English is really interesting, right? It's it's kind of it's kind of an oxymoron, and it kind of gets at something um, important, I think. So fast forward a millennium and a half from Buddha's time, A. H. Dogen, our 13th century founder from Japan, has traveled to China, where he will study with Ru Jing, the old Buddha, as he called him, with the real deal that Dogen had been looking for all these years. Dogen sees for the first time at Ru Jing's temple a devotional ritual that he had only read about. Before the morning service, monastics would place their folded robes on their head and with deep reverence chant the following verse, how great the robe of liberation a formless field of merit, wrapping ourselves in Buddha's teaching, we free all living beings. Dogen says that he was so moved by the sight and by the, by the devotion that he saw that his tears moistened the lapel of his robe. It also seems clear from what Dogen says in his writing about the wondrous virtues of the Kishaya that he saw the robe as Buddha's own body, not just the symbol, but the signless, you know, when it says formless feel, that's signless, signless embodiment of the true Dharma brought from India to China by Bodhidharma. So the emotion that Dogen felt in his body in that moment, at the sight of that devotional practice, inspired him to bring that practice back to Japan. And this event in Dogen's life, in Dogen's body, is the reason why everyone in the Zendo, both in the hall and on Zoom this evening, who is wearing a Rakusu, put it on by first placing it on their heads and chanting this very same robe chant. So fast forward another millennium or so after Dogen, uh, in the time of deep COVID lockdown, and you'll find three rather tall gentlemen upstairs in this very building sewing Rakusus under the guidance of Ogetsu. I am the shortest of the three at 6'1", and Wade, my Dharma <laughs> brother, is the tallest, I think, at 6'5", along with Alex Peltz, 6'3". Um, we were the most recent students to receive the precepts in the Sangha this past June, and many people present here were at present at that event. The Jukai ceremony includes receiving documents, tracing the lineage of Dharma transmission, and a document with names of women ancestors, it includes committing 
to the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. Um, in a, and, and soon we will begin doing a monthly ceremony that 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 uh, that that renews that commitment every month. And it includes receiving the Rakusu from the teacher's own hand, um, from Dogen's hand, from Bodhidharma's hand, from Buddha's hand. The early parts of that lineage are no doubt legendary because it was only in Tang Dynasty China that people got really interested in preserving all the historical names. But the, tradi- the traditional lineage with the traditional name stands for the people in each generation who preserved and also accommodated and adapted in order to preserve this practice tradition across millennia and across continents, which is how it got right here, right now in Chicago in 2023. Um, Peter Coyote said something about what he calls Japanismo. Um, and I, and on the one hand, I get it. But on the other hand, I want to say, well, this is, this is cosmopolitanismo. You know, and that's a, that's a saying from the Stoic um, philosophers who said, you know, my true home, my true you know, um, um, homeland is the entire cosmos and all beings in the cosmos are my, are my fellow citizens. That, that, um, that Stoic teaching is very close to um, what gets said about emptiness and uh, interbeing in this tradition. So I have to say that the embodied experience of Jukai and the embodied fact of wearing this Rakusu, uh, that whole thing was, uh, was even more powerful than I expected it to be. Um, in some way or other, there were clearly parts of this organism that did not immediately habituate to the new fact of this thing in my life and on my body. This thing, I keep calling it that, just to just, just sort of symbolize kind of the, the uncanniness of this thing that is also Buddha's body. This thing received in some way from Buddha's own hands. So uh, my, the organism did just kind of go into a weird crisis mode. So I thought I had lost my lineage papers when I got home from, from Dukai. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, I figured, okay, I left them here. I, you know, I thought I would sneak in and find them. I didn't find them. I got Hogetsu in on the search, and then I got home uh, that evening and, you know, looked again in my shoulder bag, and, ah, oh, I had put it in a, in a back pocket of the, the shoulder bag. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, I kept either wearing my Rakusu into the bathroom or then forgetting it when I came back to the Zendo. So it felt, it almost felt like the Rakusu was a piece of, you know, meteoric rock that had crashed into my atmosphere. Um, and then when I realized that, oh, wait, these hands had sewn this thing, the feeling was even stranger. You know, just, it, it's both intimate and, um, and not, not, it's mine and not mine. It wasn't until the seven-day session last month that my body, this body, began to feel comfortable in the Rakusu after wearing it pretty much all day, every day for a week. Um, and I only uh, accidentally stole um, um, uh, Bo's uh, Rakusu once because we both got <laughs> to the bathroom at the same time. Um, now I find that I'm not eager to take it off once I've put on this formless field of merit and wrapped myself in Buddha's teaching to free and accompany all living beings. It's remarkable and wonderful that um, my Dharma brother Wade is now our new sewing teacher. I heartily recommend um, preparing to receive the presets to anybody who might be interested in doing it or considering it. All it takes here to work with me.
So let's move on to talking about Orioki, this um, this serving and and receiving food, preparing, serving, and receiving food ritual that embodies and enacts the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. Um, it has happened here in this space during a session, uh, and being a server, being being one of the people, um, how to say it, being one of the people helping to create the ritual drama of Oriopi was something that I that I <clears throat> deeply um, appreciated. Um, I like that. I, I appreciate the opportunity, um, and it happens here in this space too. There's there's this sense of of us as collectively doing um, doing functions that 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 look priestly, um, as well as um, as well as functions that are that are those of lay practitioners and doing them together. So. Uh, the reason that this this devotion or this this ritual seems to be to me to belong in the same category is because in, because of what the meal chant says. First, it says that we set out Buddha's own bowls, and then when when the food itself arrives, and carrying the food in after seeing the Tenzo do nine prostrations to the to the food and doing the doing a kitchen service. I mean, I, I get it that, 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 you know, one week is long enough to feel the ritual drama and not enough to feel that, you know, here we go again. I get that, that, <laughs> that that's part of the situation. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there, there is a kind of ritual drama in, in this serve, you know, sort of, it's as, it's as though, ah, food is being treated with the solemnity that it deserves, which is the solemnity of a, of a wedding, a funeral, uh, a, a birth, all of those things. So it's very special indeed, I think. So, you know, when, we, when the meal chant begins, with, before the, the, the bowls are open, the, the chant is sort of Buddha's resume, or just saying, this particular human embodied person. Buddha was born in Kapilavastu, enlightened in Magadha, taught in Varanasi, entered Nirvana in Kushinagara. Um, you know, uh, obviously it wasn't the same, the same atoms and cells in all of those places, right? As an, empt- as an emptiness body, which is the only kind of body there is, uh, you know, Buddha, Buddha's body was a candle flame too. So it, it was and was not the same Buddha in all of those locations. But then it goes on to say, now we set out Buddha's own bowls, as if just saying, don't, don't be confused. Don't think that we, we just mean something mystical when we say these are Buddha's own bowls. May we, with all living beings, realize the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. Um, food can be a deep, powerful experience of emptiness, right? I think it's right to say that, you know, right now, um, what I had for breakfast is saying, hi, I'm David, and is sitting on this, sitting on this cushion. And also, we, you know, we, uh, maybe this will gross you out, you know, but, but we know this from COVID. We've all been sitting zazen together, and right now, we are literally physically inter- permeating right our our physical beings are literally in each other right and they are as dogen says in that chant you know radiating everywhere through all the realms like the bell that 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 wade struck with it with a mallet and the, the, the waves the ripples 
never stops, right? And as the food appears, the meal chant kind of goes into this ecstatic naming of 10 different names of Buddha, starting with the three bodies, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, um, and then naming um, various uh, the great bodhisattvas, and ending like the, like the echo that, that we just chanted. Um, another thing that I found deeply moving, um, and it really doesn't matter what belief system somebody has, it's, just, it's so not about belief, it's so earth-grounded, um, earth is the offering for spirits. However, somebody understands that, uh, putting a piece of food on the end of the spatula or setsu and then being one of the servers to come and, and receive it and sort of uh, with a, little, uh, a little wooden thing that's sort of like a, a, a boom in a, in a dustbin. Um, shamanic practices, I've been looking again at, at um, Zenju's uh, amazing book on the shamanic bones of, um, of Zen. So maybe that's enough to say about um, Oriyoki for the moment. I will come back to Stoicism just, just for a moment. I also know that Feigen likes it when I do comparison things between Greek things and, and Buddhist things. So this thing that the Stoics say about the interpenetration of all things, they took it very seriously. The Stoic universe is a non atomic universe and one philosopher Chrysippus said as an example he said if you if you take one drop of wine and drop it in the ocean eventually it's all wine and it's all, all, all ocean um, and, and that applies to every being in the world as well it's, it's I and all those who are philoid, who are friends of mine, who are dear to me. And what's the boundary of that? Well, it expands and expands until at last I become at home in the cosmos. Because when I say I, all beings, all beings are with me. And every breath says, may I be happy. And every breath says, may all beings be happy. That's just what it is to breathe. So our shared practice tradition has found some beautiful, intimate, tender ways to ritualize and bring home this point that your own embodiment embodies Buddha. Florence Kaplow yesterday was talking about this fundamental teaching of our Soto Zen flavor of Buddhism, our house style, this teaching of awakeness as our original face. So how do we realize and actualize the Buddha embodiment that our bodies already fundamentally are? Of course, as good Zen students, we all know the answer is just sit, um, which some people on the Soto Zen, uh, Soto Zen Buddhism Facebook group love to just pair up in response to every question. <laughs> so somebody will say, hey, can you recommend a good translation of the Diamond Sutra? And, you know, three people will say, just sit. <laughs> and they're proud of themselves because they know that's always right. <laughs> So I'm really interested in how Dogen serves up this answer, just sit in the Juju Yuzamai uh, chant uh, from his writings that we just now originally chanted. He says, for all ancestors and Buddha and dwelling in and maintaining Buddha Dharma, 
practicing upright sitting in Jujuyu Samadhi, so self-accepting or self-receiving and enjoying, self-enjoying Samadhi, meditation concentration, is the true path for opening up, awakening. And then he says, from the time you begin practicing with a teacher, the practices of incense, repentance, and reading sutras are, are not at all essential. That last phrase was the, was the phrase that, that Dogen, as it were, overheard his teacher, Rujin, saying to another student, and it was an aha moment, one of the things that he brought back from, from China. So the true path for opening up the awakening that is already there is upright sitting, meaning, among other things, that it's a yoga pose requiring the care and maintenance of micro-adjustment and props, and trying different positions, and so on. You know, the whole... The whole drama of that. And on day two of my session, I decided, you know, I think I need a softer cushion. And I was right. Oh, I'm going to survive after all. I'm going to make it to day seven. Yeah, everybody, everybody knows this drama. I hear, I hear the, the, the sighs of recognition. Um, and it's upright sitting in Jujuyuzama, the self-fulfillment state of awareness, which just receives and accepts and enjoys and employs the conventional self. I can, I can finally help me to understand that's what the self means here. It just means whatever arises, this Zaz accepts and bears witness to. I'm thinking of what David Weiner said um, the other day about the work of a chaplain, just witnessing. So I want to go back to Dogen's second sentence about all these practices that he calls inessential. I'll read it again. From the time that you begin practicing with the teacher, the practices of incense burn, bowing, nenbutsu, that's mantra chanting, I think, uh, repentance, I think that's the bodhisattva ceremony, and reading sutras are not at all essential just sit, dropping off body and mind. So some really quick things about these five practice, devotional ritual practices. Um, I, I am very grateful for all these practices, and I appreciate them. I feel them as devotion in my body when I do them. I'm also interested in the thought that these practices might have new things to teach our bodies and minds about how to practice both upright sitting and upright living, you know, that thing of bringing the mind of Zen into something that you might not think is Zen, is Zazen. So all five of these practices, interestingly, predate Buddhism. Right? Some of them go back, or aspects of them go back to the Stone Age. They're human species embodied ritual practices found in lots of places over the planet. Our Dharma ancestors did not invent them, but rather found them and adapted them. In other words, you know, received them and enjoyed them and used them and transmitted them to us. Incense has been used for some 5,000 years, and the way that we use it is both as a, as, as a kind of ritual cleansing, but maybe even more importantly, as a sacrificial offering of the sweet-smelling products of earth. Zenju, in her book on the Shamanic Bones, talks about um, offering incense in a time of oppression 
and experiencing herself offering her body as representing the entire earth to the ancestors. And we might, of course, stop using incense at a certain point in, in the Zendo because of body sensitivity. But for many practitioners, it's part of daily Zazen practice. Bowing in Gasho with palms together and fingertips at the level of the nose is an acknowledgement and an expression, an enactment of Buddha greeting a Buddha with reverence. And a full bow in prostration, cow talon, that, that's the, uh, that in Chinese that means headbanging. So it's, it's, the, it's the thing of, of expressing full reverential outpouring of the body and devotion by putting the head on the floor and then lifting the palms to raise the Buddha's lotus feet. is again a ritual form that long predates Buddhism. I was grasping for things like that before I came to this practice. I was doing things like um, kissing kissing the foot of a, of a statue of Hanuman in the morning. I, my body hungers to express devotion. I love the moment when when uh, we go from um, um, what's it called when you sit when you, when you sit with your, on your knees. Um, say thank you from from Seiza in just bowing forward and it just feels like whump at the beginning of the ancestors and I, and I love I love that feeling the way that it feels like uh, just the body sighs with gratitude with gratitude and reverence. Uh, Nen Butsu, so that's chanting Buddha. Um, I'm rattling my beads because I want to show you my beads. Uh, many people use beads around here. So this is a mala and it's got 108 beads. The first book that I read, this is the first Zen book that I read after um, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind was Taigen's Faces of Compassion. And I learned all kinds of things about bodhisattvas, about whom I knew basically nothing. And I also learned that they all had their mantras. And being somebody who years before that had learned to say the rosary from some pamphlet, you know, that's something you know, a kid who wanted to be Catholic. Um, I kind of did the do-it-yourself thing of, you know, collecting the, the mantras, partly from Tygen's book. Um, and and um, I think it was on Saturday, I walked for an hour and a half and just felt the need for all the things that happen in my body and my emotions my mind, when I, when I, you know, when I allow myself just to get intimate with those bodhisattva energies by chanting, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum for Avalokiteshvara, or um, sometimes I think the, the, the most amazing one is a total antidepressant is um, um, uh, Jizo's mantra. I use a, the Sanskrit form, Om Ha 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 Vismaye Svaha. Om ha 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 vismayes bahadats. And it's it's just a laughter yoga thing. Om ha 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 to the amazing one. Yay. You know, that that is really a thing to to just to allow the body to sigh uh, in in times of trouble, right? In times of trouble. And other times too. Um, repentance, I do believe, refers to the bodhisattva ceremony, uh, the precepts remembrance ceremony, um, whose predecessors go back to Vedic times and probably the Stone Age, you know, with animal sacrifice. But in any event, coming soon, that is to say, coming on Wednesday, we will be having the first repentance, we will be having the first Bodhisattva ceremony. And it from, from early times, it was a way for 
lay practitioners to participate fully in the spirit and the embodiment of monastic practice, monastic life, monastic commitment. Sutra reading, you know, we do that around here in all the in all the modes, including the flower ornament sutra coming up on Friday night. And finally, I might also add dana giving as an embodied devotional practice by becoming a supporting member of this practice community, not just as an offering, but as a way of actualizing full belonging to this practice home that stretches across space and time. I'm going to read a paragraph by Zenju Earthland Manual, and then I'm done. It's from her book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. She says, within the Sangha that I lead, the rituals and ceremonies are crucial. I can espouse my views about oppression and internalized oppression, but it is the rituals of Zen, clear of my thinking and conceptualization, that will give my students an experience of liberation despite oppression. I am merely the conduit that encourages aspirants of awakening to continue sitting, seeing, bowing, and offering themselves also as conduits of wisdom. In ritual, aspirants are not following me, the person, as much as following and witnessing a way to take action with attention in the midst of their suffering. Every student must contend with the question, do you feel controlled by the rituals or are they leading you in silence to the place of compassion and insight? We look forward to your comments and questions. Sometimes I feel like Ninbutsu gets short shrift mm-hmm. in our tradition. Because mm-hmm. uh, on its face, I think it can seem, you know, you, you chant the name of whoever and you'll be reborn in a pure land. And that can seem very not like what we're doing here. <clears throat> but correct me if I'm wrong, the Nen in Ninbutsu is mind or remembering. Right? So like chonen kanzeyonen kanzeyonen nennen jushinki nennen furushinki. So it's remembering Buddha. And I feel like everything we do here is remembering Buddha. Right? Sewing the rakasu, serving the food in Orioki is remembering Buddha not with the mind, but with the body. Mm. Remembering that the way that we clothe and feed each other mm. is a Buddha meeting a Buddha. The way that Zazen is remembering your Buddhahood with your body. So this has been a very powerful <clears throat> metaphor for me in my practice. Mm. Just if I'm getting upset about something, if I can just remember that Buddhism exists, mm-hmm. not even not even do anything but with it, but just remember that practice exists. If I can remember Buddha, I'm immediately back in the situation and remembering that everything around me is this echoing of shunyata before and after I remember it. I strike it with my hammer of my boots. Yeah. 
Yeah. Speaking of pure land, and thank, thank you for that. Uh, there's a story in um, uh, The Hidden Land from um, Lawrence Capital and Susan Means and, and, and many, many women practitioners um, edited, edited volume. Uh, and there's this old granny who is a practitioner of pure land Buddhism. And there's a, I think it's a, a, a Zen monastic who is teasingly saying, oh, granny, you're going to, you're going to the, going to see, to, to see Buddha. And, she, you know, she kind of looks at him and says, is Buddha in the, the pure land? And she goes, is Buddha in the temple? Well, where's Buddha? That's where Buddha is. In the heart, in the body. Yeah. yeah. In growing up in our Christian tradition, Presbyterian, uh, we would talk about the kingdom of heaven. You know, this is like common Christian language. Sure. We, we would talk about it. It's like the kingdom of heaven is not a place that you go to when you die. The kingdom of heaven, it's your task to make it mm-hmm. here on earth right now. And this is the pure, this is the pure land, mm-hmm. right? This the pure land is where you are when you remember Buddha. <laughs> If I may just add to that, thank you very much. Dave. Yeah, Nambutsu as a phrase in Japan means just homage to Namamita Buddhas, because that's was adapted by uh, the Kurland schools. But the Nen or Nambutsu means remembering, I also think of it as reminding, bringing together the mind of Buddha. And so it, it, it's, it spreads everywhere. It's not just uh, it's in Zen, it's in all of our lives. So. I loved your references to the Stone Age. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Man. I was there. We're <laughs> <laughs> there. It's not the Stone Age. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The jumble of thoughts, but um, but first of all, thank you for your talk. It was I, I really appreciated it. I, and I was just thinking about so many things, but really struck by um, what Zenju that that quote from Zenju at the end about um, you know are you being impressed by the ritual or are you letting it bring you to you know compassion and, and wisdom and awakening? And um, I think that. One of the one of my random thoughts is that um, it's unfortunate that so many of us were oppressed by rituals, you know, that we didn't understand as children, and you know, sometimes pum- punished with them, um, not not brought to them skillfully, and it, it's it's unfortunate because it's led to a lot of baggage for many people who. Um, you know, maybe reject that ritual and um, and any any good that might come out of it. But I think also that that is, um, you know, maybe one of the elements that was very much in the forefront at the time when Zen, you know, really became popular in the United States as a as a um, antidote to, you know, maybe. Um, People feeling that their their religion of of you know that they were brought up in was was too oppressive, and they wanted you know this new thing, and maybe that led to a little bit of um, 
downplaying, you know, some of the some of the other things. You know, that we have. I, I think the way I learned it originally was it's it's sort of like a three-legged stool. You know, Sheila or um, ethical conduct, prajna or wisdom, and samadhi or meditation, and they 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 really need to balance each other out, but. Um, in the United States, people really wanted to focus just on um, samadhi for for quite some time, and it's been, um, you know, maybe a well, you know, I think it, as we begin to practice as a community, we learn more about you know maybe prajna and shila, um, and but no one no one element is more important than than any of the others and so um it's it's i hadn't really thought about the lines from Jews am i about these practices before um but they are they are all important for bringing um you know various parts of ourselves or maybe specifically various people you know someone like like you know, I'm, I get all charged up by chanting the Buddhas and ancestors, you know, and that's, that's my thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. somebody else gets all charged up by burning incense, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's a lot there to, um, you know, maybe to create like a, a little Dharma gate for someone. And um, I think I'll stop now. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Um yeah, I, I, I certainly share that that thought that that a lot of people in this culture have experienced wounding um, with religious forms, and that's one reason why somebody might um, feel aversion to the rituals here, and another reason might be a a, a, a commitment to another religious form. So, a friend of mine recently came here and wanted to wanted to be part of this community and wants to develop his sitting practice, and and he said, you know what? I can't be in a place where people, where human beings bow to other human beings, which I said, thank you for taking that ritual seriously and your own self-care, and I hope I can support your practice Mm -hmm. and your path. Mm -hmm. This this is definitely not for for everybody, but maybe maybe there are people for whom it is a kind of, um, that's a good way to say it. I don't want to say desensitization, but a way to experience something that was traumatic before and experience it in a way that 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 that, that is healing. Yeah, we can't really know for right. any any for anybody mm-hmm. what what that is for them and what they might wish to do with it. But uh, but but you're, it, it sounds like it was a it was a really you know a moment of awakening for your friend that you know this yeah. for me is is not. Doesn't feel doesn't feel right. 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 I, I feel like that's just as much an awakening as many awakenings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Thank you so much for your talk. I, I feel like I learned. Describing the Oreo, I, I was thinking a lot about uh, relative truth and ultimate truth, and 
you know, you were describing, you know, kind of symbolically the ultimate truth of, of, of what's happening. And, you know, the relative truth is that we're eating lunch, right? And so it's, it's um, for me, the, the, the forms are kind of what I make of them, you know, like in my heart and mind. And um, so that information will help me enrich that experience because usually I'm just afraid I'm going to make a mistake. <laughs> you know, there's some level of stress in the room yeah. at the Ryoki in general. But um, I have been a server several times, and, and it's a, it is a beautiful ritual. And um, and the, the ritual of Ryoki itself is, is lovely and a tea. And, Everything that we do, um, whether I know the background or not, um, I can feel in my body, be an embodied kind of experience, just uh, by participating. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, for me, the incense um, I use as a Dharma gate, uh, as, a, as a sense. Like I just smell it, and it's it's wonderful because I can settle down and focus on the aroma of the incense and come into the moment, you know. Um, so I always thought, well, let's put in this wonderful incense because it's somebody that you know, like everyone can you know like be here now, and we're all experiencing the same aroma. And uh, yeah, so for me, that's that's just one example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I work this. I don't know if it's. I mean, there are no right or wrongs. Right, that's just what I do tonight. When we were doing the frustrations, I had the thought it was really lovely. I, I liked it. I was inviting the bodhisattvas up from the earth. You know, when I was lifting my hands, I was like, oh, come on up, and, and feeling this sense of like surrendering. You know, my difficulty. And inviting assistance. And who knows what will be next time, but I feel like for me, I have to, I just get, I like to be creative and spontaneous and in forms and rituals, but it's helpful to know more about it for sure. So thank you for that. Um, there are two things that I want to respond to. Uh, I love what you said about incense, and I feel that it's one of the many ways that this this tradition is um, civilizing me. You know, that, that it's 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 such a refined pleasure the the, the pleasure of incense for for those of us who, who enjoy it. Um, I've heard Tygen talk about uh, at the Shoyedo factory in. In, in Japan, and, and an astonishing ritual with, with poetry and, and, and so on. But but I, I love that, and I love I love deciding what incense to use in the morning and which bodhisattva I'm going to offer it to, and so on. And I'm glad you said the thing about oryoki and stress and pain and table manners trauma and you know the the, the the real pain of that and the stress of that and potential hilarity, but also potential real stress. I uh, I appreciated, for example, that at this at this session, Sosan said, among other things, she said, 
If you are correcting another person and you are doing it across lines of race or gender, um, you can be pretty sure that your correction is not going to land the way that you pitched it. It's going to be, it's going to be heard in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, stop and reflect whether whether your correction needs to be issued right now, and then halfway in the in in this correct anybody else. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but um, but definitely that that is an issue of um, you know of, about Oriyoki. It can be part of the practice, but it can be a real obstacle. And, Well, just the forms in general, it can be a real obstacle. Like, I've just, over the years, like, you know, I just hold it very lightly. <laughs> and, and. A mistake can be so beautiful. In the Vedic ceremony, there was a priest called the Brahma priest, and his job was to sit there and wait for somebody to make a mistake, and then he would come out and he would ritually repair the thing that happened, and then it was okay, mm-hmm. and then we could resume the, the, the ritual. I think I mean, it's very beautiful. Thank you, David, for a wonderful talk. I think it's uh, time for us to wrap up and do the four Bodhisattva vows and the last ones. But maybe if there's somebody else who has a last question. Um, be followed around by a Vedic priest who can, like, you know, repair all my mistakes. <laughs> no, don't I? Yes, yes, you need both. <laughs>